Hey team, like the show? Subscribe on iTunes, Podcast Addict, Podcast Player, Stitcher, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Then tell a friend. Help us upzone Seattle. And remember, our sponsor is always Horizon Books in Capitol Hill. Mention Upzones at the register for a 10% discount on anything in the store. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is Upzones. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. So I want to talk about the show box today, and I want to use it as an opportunity to talk about what might possibly have been the worst interaction with a fellow human being who wasn't an outright fascist I've ever had in my entire life. So as I record this, today is Monday. The Seattle City Council has just approved legislation that would extend the downtown, uh, specifically Pike Place Historic District, to the show box, but also to a number of buildings that were between the show box and Pike Place to make it a one contiguous district. Under the legislation, if approved by Mayor Durkin, the show box's little parcel of land would be moved into the historic district on an at least an interim basis. That is to say, for at least a period of time, nobody could build in this particular district without a very extensive set of loops. And it, we all know it's extremely hard as it is to build in Seattle, and this would make it extremely tough. And the 44-story building that was going to be an apartment complex and, and house uh, several hundred, um, if not a small, low thousands number of uh, renters is off the table. If Mayor Durkin does approve, we can kiss that development goodbye. Keep in mind, it does mean that the developer, uh, known as Oni, could just walk away and not build anything and not try to do anything with the land because they know it'll be too hard. Uh, the owner of the property, Roger Forbes is his name, he could then sue the city. Um, and I'll get back to that. He could sue the city if there's anything less than a 44-story apartment in two years' time. You may remember I opened the little monologue here uh, saying I met the worst person I'd ever met in my life. And obviously that's not true. The worst people I've ever met all participated in meme wars and blame liberals because they can't get laid. But uh, this was a pretty close uh, second considering the person was a self-described liberal, progressive, Seattleite, worked at Gates Foundation previously, no longer. Anyway, so I was at a 40th birthday party, a close friend, I really liked the guy and is a friend of a friend of a friend this hideous person. So, you know, no reflection on the friend, but we got to talking about the fact that I do this show. Some third or fourth party said, hey, Ian does a show. And we got to talking about that. And this particular person, a woman had asked, hey, you know, what do you know about homelessness? And I said, I, you should be careful because I have strong opinions, but I think they're well informed. And we got to talking and, and you know, again, I, I, my jaw dropped further and further as we talked. And I came to realize that her uh, opinions and positions were really just reflective of many, many Seattleites. You know, first, no matter how much information and data we put in front of her, she refused to acknowledge that homelessness is mostly a supply problem, at least in this city, uh, that drug addiction is, is not a driving or primary factor, although it can, of course, exacerbate, that mental illness, likewise, can exacerbate homelessness, but is not a driving factor. And 
displacing people from their homes. Uh, you know, just no matter what data, really the, the larger group came around, she just refused to acknowledge. And at one point I said something to the effect of, you know, we need to upzone the city and we need to really, you know, begin to infill density. And her response was, well, I would be outraged if they built an apartment next to me. I really thought this was a phenomenon of 40 plus or 45, 50 plus, mostly white, although this person was white, um, you know, old Seattle. I could never imagine that a tech worker would ever think like that. And, it, it, you know, but I and I think a lot of us were just shocked. And, and then she dropped the real doozy and said, you know, if the choice were mine and it was between paying a few hundred more dollars in rent and being homeless or just moving to Issaquah, I would move to Issaquah as though that was an option for people who are being subjected to economic evictions. I, I was genuinely dumbfounded. And to top it off, I tried to be the peacemaker. We were, after all, at a 40th birthday party. And I said to the group, I said to her, you know, there's an answer that won't even raise your taxes. We could just turn uh, the golf courses, the public golf courses into affordable or even market rate housing. Just densify them, turn them into Brooklyn. And her response, no, Golf rounds take far too long on public courses anyway. Now, when I did pick my jaw up off the floor, uh, it occurred to me, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This is what Seattle is. Seattle is not the folks who live in Capitol Hill, rich, poor, white, gentrifier, uh, brown or queer, uh, native. We all share. There's just certain things, even, even if we mean them, we won't say them. Uh, I'll call it what it is. This was just bald self-interest masquerading as some kind of uh, desire to see the city stay uh, exactly how this person liked it. And I, I, I was I was just shocked to have it from a young person in my face right in Capitol Hill. It was it was really alarming and, and surprising and amazing. Back to the show box. <laughs> That's what this is. That's exactly what this whole debate around the show box is. When all of these folks, these, let's call uh, this person golfer lady, when all of these golfer ladies who blame homelessness on the homeless and on their behavioral choices and who's, who say, why can't they just move to Renton? Who openly acknowledge that they would never allow for apartments or density of any kind in their residential neighborhoods, who cannot even countenance the repurposing of a golf course to serve not just the homeless, but the displaced in the city. I mean, I, I worked in federal politics. Little shocks me, but this conversation just left me shocked. That is what this city is, and that's why we have the show box. The show box is really just a symptom that there is nowhere else to build. Have I seen shows there? Yeah, it's fabulous. I love going to a good show there. Uh, I saw uh, Toro Imoy with a good friend of mine. There's one of my first weeks in Seattle many, many years ago now. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget how high I got in their parking lot. That's right. But you know what? Showbox is a symptom. Showbox is what happens when the rest of Seattle will not allow infill, will not allow apartments, will not allow uh, even a conversation around uh, repurposing a golf course, for Christ's sake. So you know what I say? While people are dying... I say fuck the show box. Build a 44-story apartment building right where it once stood. You know, if you're Roger Forbes and you ever listen to this, if Mayor Durkin uh, signs the, the bill just passed by the council into law, sue the pants off the city. I, make, make the city pay through the nose. And 
keep it going for years. And anyone who would have lived there should file a class action suit and sue the city for that. Hopefully a good, a smart, wise court will find standing. And keep doing it every time the city takes an action to privilege the privileged and to benefit the few over this housing crisis that we have right now. Every time golf lady steps in and makes this a worse place to live and forces us to lose the show box, which by the way, that's what we deserve. We deserve to lose the show box. We should sue. Anyway, my guest <laughs> is a poet. Shinyu Pai uh, is a former uh, town hall resident poet, uh, town resident poet in Redmond, and has, and has been just a longtime voice, not only in Seattle, in the daily experience of this place, and has done some really interesting work, as we'll, you'll soon hear, but also um, just really is pressing the boundaries. She'll get into this a little bit. We Thankfully, with some of my background, we're able to really talk shop, and she talks about form and how she's really trying more to live a story and to have the, the poems expressed through the work that she does rather than any kind of words on paper. Um, and, and she she just had a lot of great stuff to say. I, I, I really hope that you enjoy and you check out her show, which is uh, coming up soon. That's good to know. That's good to know. Um, yeah, so... and. The first couple of questions are pretty easy warm-up type things. Yeah. Yeah. It's just talking, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So where'd you grow up? Southern California in Riverside. Riverside. Yeah. Okay. So was that like suburban, single family, two parents kind of situation? Yes. Yeah. And um, my parents are immigrants from Taiwan, but the community where we grew up, High Grove, which is in between uh, Riverside and San Bernardino, there weren't any Asian people. Okay. So it was like Latinos and African Americans. So it was a very strange place to grow up um, right. for, for I can us. imagine. Yeah. yeah not, a, not a big sense of community and being pulled in a lot of different directions in terms of like how to fit in identity politics and code switching. Right. Yeah. And so you're like in high school, junior high, what was kind of your main home base area how did you find the community hmm how did i find the community i mean yeah high school was like really a difficult time for me like i read a lot of books and was very deeply into literature and the local coffee house scene you know and hung out with people on the swim team and took a lot of arts classes but mm -hmm. i mean it was just Growing up as like a young girl or a young girl of color in Southern California is dismal. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. The kind of the body images that you're surrounded oh, by yeah, yeah. and um, the messages you get about beauty, um, really, yeah, a difficult place, which is why I left it as soon as I could when I was 17. Mm -hmm. yeah. And where'd you come? You came up here? Or? No, I've moved around a lot, but um, initially I, I went to college in Boston, actually. Okay. Down on the East Coast. I want to go as far as I could. I'm an East Coast guy. I went to college in New Jersey. All right. Yeah. We're going to give uh, the dog a little treat here. Uh-huh. Because he's feeling Is a little he restless? restless. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that way he won't sniff at your purse. Sure. I, had a I do have food in there. Oh, I have, like, that's mangos. what it is. I have do, mangoes do, and other goods. <laughs> do, you know, do you know Stephanie Stokes Oliver? Are you familiar with her? She's no, a really. she's a writer and an editor. Um, she's been a longtime magazine editor, and she recently published a book, and we had her on the on the show. Cool. Okay. But he he wouldn't get out of her bag. 
So, I'll probably, I'll, I'll try to like, yeah, like the mangas are like in a little zip lock. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, he's, to, like, yeah. he's got his peanut butter now, so okay. he'll, be, he'll be good. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, it sounds like you had, um, you kind of had the bug, the writing bug early, and you just sort of stuck with it based on what you were saying. I'd say so. Like, I feel like poetry was this form of expression that I could really relate to from, like, my teen years. And I had teachers that encouraged creative writing. And so when I got to college, I took uh, poetry workshops. I interned at a magazine, a literary magazine. And, yeah, then my path from there was to enroll in an MFA program. So it was something where I felt like I could see a path for myself in a Mm -hmm. pretty clear way. Yeah. Yeah, you know that, that's it's interesting. So you said it was a refuge in your teen years, and I think a lot of folks. I mean, gosh, so many folks. That's almost a trope, you know. Mm-hmm. But then you, there's something that happens at some point in someone's life when they're going, "Oh, no, no, I'm good at this." Mm-hmm. Right? Do, do you have that moment for you? Was there is there something a single moment or a series of smaller ones where that crystallized? So. I feel like my impetus for writing from the point when I was a young person was very much around sense making. I'm just finding my way in the world. And and I've talked about this before, but I think my desire to write poetry came out of uh, not having a common language with my immigrant mother. And so my motivations for writing weren't necessarily ever about ambition or being good in any sort of conventional sense, but Mm. was sort of an aspirational kind of thing for me in terms of finding some sort of metaphorical or common language with this person that I loved. Mm. And that's something that I turn to a lot um, or is very significant to me. I will say, though, that... um, It wasn't like, you know, in my graduate school programs where I felt like what I was doing was cohering or evolving into some sort of aesthetic or body of work. I I feel like maybe you see those things, you know, 20 years in like now. But I think like one of maybe the pivotal moments in my life where I felt like this practice that I had made or this path that I had chosen, um, that I could do that and that it could be honored or respected was when I did this artist residency at the McDowell Colony, probably back in 2003. So I was at that time, maybe like three, four years out of graduate school, three years, three years, I suppose. And I was surrounded by people who were these incredible filmmakers, composers, artists, you know, showing in museum environments and galleries. And there, it was interesting, there were other writers as well, but I've always sort of gravitated towards other kinds of artists mm-hmm. from other disciplines. There was nothing to prove. It was like you were there doing your work, right. and that was it. And maybe a mutual respect, because what, what are they even going to judge you against? Yeah. They're, they're doing their thing, right? Yes, they're, and it's a completely different vocabulary yeah. or criteria for success or mm-hmm. you know, whatever that looks like. And I think um, being amongst a really professional peers that were so supportive of me at that time when I was like in maybe like my mid to late 20s, mm-hmm. I think. That was for me, I think, a, a kind of first moment of maybe seeing a, a life for myself in a way that my practice could be very powerful. That's great. That's just a great insight, you know. And you um, you said something that your ambition was that you're, was not to be good. You I specifically said that. But you, you are. I mean, I, I, I understand. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, I, and one of the things, so, you know, I, I come out of the spoken word poetry. I won the championship here in Seattle a few years ago. It's like, That's awesome. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I actually, there's something that I push back on inside the community, and it's this, 
it's it's funny. It's a cultural. It's an unwritten cultural rule. There's no. Sure. There's no nothing. No, no one would. Most people would not even acknowledge that it exists. But it's this. Um, this sense that there is no shared or intersubjective good versus bad, and that that even sometimes there's this pushback against trying to cultivate talent mm. um, because it then what you're doing is you're putting your stamp on someone else's voice, mm. and I, I push back against that because I think there are tools that constitute and i'm putting air quotes for the listeners good poetry there are tools you can access that doesn't mean that a voice is better or worse uh, uh, uh you know dead white male's voice is not better than than anyone else's voice but there are techniques there are tactics there are uh, ways of connecting with your reader or your listener and so i'm curious for you as a poet as a as a successful poet as a, as a decorated poet how did you navigate that in terms of i'm gonna get better i'm gonna actually enhance my craft of poetry yeah so yeah practicing i think really dedicating myself to to writing in an ongoing way and i think that was a big part of it just like the work of it and carving out that time mm. and writing a lot of bad stuff yeah, yeah, <laughs> to get yeah. to the good stuff but also uh the willingness to take risks in my work uh mm. it hasn't necessarily maybe looked the same as other more traditional writers like for me i'm much more excited by working in collaboration with different artists of disciplines because then i learn something about my work or a way in which it can be expressed or a medium and so i think I've, I've worked collaboratively with, with people who are book artists, with musicians, and I think that I've always felt challenged to not let those forms carry the work. Like, my work has to meet the excellence of the work that I'm then sort of mm. in collaboration or in conversation with. And I think over time, um, mm. like, my path to getting better has been around the kind of risks that I'm willing to take with my work. And so, like, some of the recent work that I've done for the city of Redmond, I could have just as easily, like, you know, taught writing workshops or curated things at the library and just had a very sort of quiet two years, but it wasn't what I wanted to do or what I was interested in. Like, you know, Redmond's this really interesting, like, technology hub, and you have a, a lot of interesting communities there as well. And so... My work there, I decided I wanted to experiment with like technology and objects and do like, uh, you know, embroidered poetry broadsides. And I also wanted to do this projected video, animated video poem on the back yeah. of City Hall. Okay. I could also like look at environmental initiatives and policy that are kind of shaping the direction that Redmond may go. And so I guess like the, 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 the evolution of my craft isn't simply just about, like, mastery of form, mm -hmm. which is a way to think of how people approach writing, right? Mm -hmm. Craft, um, tradition. For me, it is about the shattering of form. Can you tell me a little more about that? I, you caught me on a cliffhanger because I'm, I'm very intrigued by what you're saying, but I'm not tracking all the way. Yeah. Um, the work is going to take the form that it needs to, to, to sort of exist in the world. And that is not necessarily the sort of traditional mm -hmm. poem on a page or... So yeah. it's, not, it's not that it's antagonistic to form, it's 
like agnostic to form. It's, yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, it's fair to say. Um, at the same time, things that I've made, like a series of chlorophyll prints last summer um, for the city of Redmond, where I took archival. Can we images. throw that up on the on the post when we yeah, when we course. post this? Okay. Yeah. Great. So um, basically, I went to the Redmond Historical <clears throat> Society and I curated out a series of images that kind of told the story of Redmond, a few narratives about Redmond and and what it is as a place. And I wanted to sort of ground and connect um, viewers to that history by then going around the city of Redmond and gathering leaves from plants, mm -hmm. um, trees around the city that I then um, used to print onto in a very sort of simple uh, printing, like low-fi alternative photography process that doesn't involve any other chemistry, but the idea was to basically print directly on the leaves with no extra emulsion or chemistry. And so I created this series of work for the city and um, I think in like the first sort of work plan in which I talked about the project, I, I'd, I'd floated the idea or possibility that I might write a poem or two related to this work. But then once the series of images was done, like the dozen or so images, I was like, I actually I'm done. I don't want to write any poems yeah, about it. Yeah. And then had to kind of make this argument about like these images being poetic gestures okay. in their own right. Was that a, that was actually that a debate? Don't need language. Well, I, I, when you, when you work as a public artist and you have a, a work plan, it's like a contract and there's mm. certain deliverables that are expected. And so to renegotiate that gets a little bit tricky. So I, my workaround in that case was uh, writing didactic labels that kind of unpacked some of what the images were <laughs> right. or the titles. But I didn't feel personally that I wanted to write poems at that point because um, the poetic gesture is in the tying of the image to the land, quite literally in that history, that living right. history. And so... Yeah, I don't know if all that comes across through the work, but for me, I feel like um, there are very intentional ways in which I think about form mm -hmm. that I don't always know when I'm setting out on a project, and then it kind of evolves or yeah. unfolds. Nabokov called uh, poetry the longest distance between two points. <laughs> and I, I can see that here. I mean, we'll put this up on the post so that sure. listeners can actually look at what it, what we're talking about. But you can see that there's so much verbal's wrong, but like mimetic density inside a leaf, right? Based mm -hmm. on what you've presented here. So yeah, I got gotcha. you. I get it. So you, maybe you didn't want to write the poem. No, the poem's here. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's great. And so you know, you've talked now even just here today about this evolution that you've undergone, mm -hmm. and then you've tied it into your work with Redmond. I know you've also been a uh, Town Hall Seattle sure. um, fellow. H how does, like, setting aside your work as a public artist, but just as a citizen uh -huh. of this city, um, how have the changes over the last, say, five years impacted you? And how? And then, I guess as a follow-up, I would be very curious to unpack how it's impacting your art. The changes in the city? Yeah. Well, it's a very different city than it used to be for me. So I lived here from 2007 to 2009, and then I moved away mm. when uh, I graduated from a museology school and a museology program, and um, like the economy was tanking, yeah. people were losing their jobs, and I got a little freaked out, and I took a couple jobs in the Deep South. And then we came back here in 2012, and it was very different for us because I, I got pregnant and my son was born You know, pretty soon after we moved back here and so our experiences of being in the city the second time around were quite different than when we lived here 
in the lake. So it's not an it's not an apples to orange for you personally. Yeah, right. There is a sort of disruption, right? But I think in some ways it also allowed me to sort of better see the changes that had been occurring incrementally, but then like really sped up, like uh, Ballard, as I remembered it when I first visited Seattle in 2007. You know, was a a, a lot more sleepy and mm -hmm. you know very different in feel. Um, no tiny villages, you know, and um, yeah, the kind of people that were living in the neighborhood felt quite different. And I think now, you know, it's completely transformed. I feel like on Facebook today, I saw some sort of posting that was about Ballard named as like the most hipster neighborhood there is or something, you know, and. Um, Which is funny because to me, it's still too sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I see what you're saying. I'm, having left Washington, D.C., where I lived for oh, many, sure. many years. Sure. And that's an incredibly, really rapidly gentrifying city. And, yeah. And just beyond gentrification, which is, it is what it is, but just the city is changing. I mean, even the, even the existing areas, the sort of wealthy areas are changing. I mean, everything is changing. And having gone away for six years and gone back this past year. Yeah. It blows your mind a little bit. Right. Yeah. yeah. I do feel like... Um, you know, tracking these shifts in um, the neighborhoods and the community, uh, that these are things that come into my work, I guess. Like, I felt like there was this period when I was in Seattle the first time. So I started out in a PhD program in sociocultural anthropology mm -hmm. that I dropped out of. But I felt like that was like a really critical piece of my education that filled in a lot of gaps around like understanding power. You just didn't want to do the research and publish gig? Is that... <laughs> Uh, it wasn't for me. Yeah. Like, I was much more interested in, like, the way in which museums work with social justice and uh, activate communities. Like, uh, oral history, ethnography, the tools of anthropology. Like, I didn't really want to be, like, a, a, an independent scholar. Like, I really saw myself coming to that program to be able to take those tools and apply them to my writing in a way mm. that a writer like Banu Kapil Ryder mm. works with a very sort of polyphonic polyvocal sort of technique and bringing in like the voices of other people, interviews, this sort of thing. So it, it didn't work out for me, but it was like this sort of pivotal experience in terms of like understanding social issues for the first time really deeply. And um, it changed my work a lot. So there's a shift starting in 2010 with this book that I wrote called Adamantine, where you know, the previous work had been about like East-West, cultural identity, ekphrasis, the visual arts, a lot of aesthetic stuff, a lot of heady stuff. And then in 2010, after living in Seattle, you know, there was this work that was emerging that was very much about sort of like an engagement of the world with the world and just looking, looking at the, at the people and the communities around me. There, there's a poem in there about like homelessness. There's a poem about living in my neighborhood in Ravenna and crossing the street with a, with a person who was uh, a deaf and blind. And, and just like, there were just some ways in which, um, I think my consciousness was expanding from mm -hmm. being here before. And I feel like now living in Seattle, these things, they, they also inform my work in that um, it's very hard to be an artist here and not be engaged with the world, to be thinking about the environment or about homelessness or some um, of these really big topics and issues. And so I'm not sure if I answered your I question I think Seattle directly. art, in my take is that Seattle art is fundamentally political in ways that yeah. everything is political, right? But, but even... Right. But there are thresholds, and we've passed several of them yeah. uh, as a city. And I think part of that, we, you know, I guess I just had on uh, earlier today, we mm -hmm. you know, really was talking about how we have this 
very strange dynamic in the actual politics and the sort of electoral politics of mm -hmm. Seattle, wherein it's not it's it's not really a very progressive city in terms of how sure. it's governed. Sure. And so, but but there's but there is a very strong progressive component in the populace, right? So, what you mm -hmm. get are these really interesting, almost overcorrections. I mean, I'm not commenting on the individuals, but you're, mm -hmm. we have a socialist on the city council. Mm -hmm. And so outside people go, well, they have a socialist on the city council. Mm -hmm. And, but it's a, it's actually a misrepresentation of what the governing structure is here, which is actually very kind of upper middle class, like sure. barely left of center, if that, if that in some cases, right. Mm -hmm. um, and I see that in the art where the art has to overcorrect for this Nice. There's this speech, that's yeah. a dialogue that's occurring between the people and the governance, yes. and the artists are like filling in. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, right. Um, holding those critical dialogues. That's right, because yeah. the, the leadership in most cases is not. Right, and actually, I feel like that connects a bit to the work that I did with um, Town Hall. I think to a degree, um, the last program that I did for them the lecture-style sort of program was a panel that I convened with several well-known artists, public artists, um, just talking about how creativity can innovate organizing, community organizing, especially around ideas, especially around um, the issue of homelessness, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that the maybe aspiration or desire to have a dialogue about that, which is not an area that I know much about. Um, I'm not an expert in that in, in, by any means, but it's it's something that is such a big topic in our city. Yeah. And, and so this idea that you speak of, of overcorrection, um, that's interesting to me. Yeah. yeah. And I see it. I mean, I, I've seen it in the work of yours a little bit that I've read. Yeah. Although, although also there's this very personal I mean, some of your work is really just about personal experience. And, sure. And, and, and it's as, as apolitical as one can get in, in, in the sense that, mm -hmm. again, everything's political. But So I think you run the, you kind of run the gamut. Hmm. I will say that, like, since returning to Seattle um, and making it home, um, like a lot of my work is, is surprisingly about, like, place, place, place mm -hmm. making, place keeping, um, especially in like a time when so much is disappearing or changing. And that also intersects with like the work that I do with this company called Atlas Obscura, which mm. I don't know if you know much about who they are or what they the do. the Cloud Atlas thing? No. I, I don't know what the Cloud Atlas is. <laughs> there's, a, there's a novel called The Cloud Atlas. And oh, I, yeah. wasn't it a movie too? I with think like they made Tom a movie. Hanks? Yes. Yes. This is Halle Berry. Yeah. Yes, I remember mm -hmm. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, not related. Mm. So Atlas Obscura is this uh, digital publishing company in New York that was founded by the nonfiction writer Joshua Four, mm. who wrote Moonwalking with Einstein, and his friend Dylan Thuris, who's a filmmaker. And they always had in mind this project that uh, could be about um, place and travel, but was really about inspiring curiosity and wonder, whether it's down the street or on the other side of the world. And so... Um, their project, which originally started as sort of like a crowdsourced platform for sharing, you know, sites of wonder mm. um, that were kind of off the usual travel radar, that's really evolved into a much larger project, and I curate and produce events for them. And so the events that I produce for them here in Seattle often have to do very much with, yeah, disappearing uh, histories, um, alternative futures of Seattle that could have been, you know, mm. kind of thing, and... Uh, just an idea both of uh, the making of the place, but also like place keeping as these things no longer exist, mm -hmm. basically. So I have like all this vintage scouting gear. I was wondering about that. Hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
look at these things. These are going to go in the installation. I borrowed these today from uh, the regional headquarters of the Boy Scouts. And they were like, I was in like Beacon Hill or something. And I have like a bunch of like awesome, awesome stuff. Oh, shoot. What now? <laughs> Nature. W tell me about this. What, I what is this that we're looking at here? These are vintage materials from uh, the Boy Scouts of America that I borrowed from the headquarters of the scouting organization uh, in Seattle so that I can um, make an interactive, immersive installation in a cabin at Camp Long during the Arts and Nature Festival. It has a, almost a propaganda kind of a feel to it. Sure. Doesn't it? Well, these old publications, yeah, they're, they're crazy. <laughs> they're beautiful, too, like the, the simplicity of the design, the typefaces, um, the illustrations. This one's really good. It's uh, related to, like, swimming strokes. Oh, it's literally like a how-to on the breaststroke. Yeah. Merit Badge series. Wow, it's a whole book on how to swim. Yeah, um, there are also ones related to like physical fitness, nature, citizenship. I should uh, edit myself. It is a whole book on teaching Caucasian boys how to how to swim. <laughs> every every person, every, image. every drawn or photographed image is a uh, is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant mm -hmm. <laughs> male. Mm -hmm. I guess it's the Boy Scouts, but yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And so you'll be you're using this for like um is the idea that you're going to create an immersive reproduction of the experience of like a Boy Scout? Uh, to, to evoke that experience, so um, I was invited to be part of this Arts and Nature Festival that's at Camp Long, which was uh, created originally, I think around the 1920s or so in West Seattle as a site that could encourage scouting specifically. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I like to do site responsive work that can be re very reflective of the place, but as a sort of related component, I was asked to create a piece that's related to Longfellow Creek, which runs throughout part of that land of Camp Long. Mm -hmm. And so um, we were given a cabin to basically take over, and I'd been thinking about what kind of installation could go in there. We, we were talking about, my, my creative partner and I, Michael Barakat, we were talking about doing some sort of animation, and we began to talk about the idea of not doing a video production, but something much more lo-fi. I mean, for a lot of reasons, budget, affordability, but also doing a different medium, because we've been doing these video projections in places. So we came upon the idea of doing a lo-fi analog animation through uh, a view master finder yeah. basically right so yeah. so like one of those you know kind of vintage little hand headsets handheld sets where those, yeah. yeah where you just kind of click through like you know like a dozen frames or mm -hmm. so and that becomes a kind of animation right. and so as we were discussing this idea, then I began to sort of formulate this idea, this vision that, you know, well, what kind of environment does that belong in? And we're doing this in the cabin. Why not just create this sort of installation that really sort of evokes like childhood and like uses the space of the cabin, this sort of very rustic place. And so um, then what made sense in looking in the history of Camp Long was to do something related to scouting. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how we Got arrived it. at that. And that goes up when? It goes up... Uh, on August 24th, but the festival is August 25th and 26th. Okay, great. Um, hey, so we like to end every interview with a segment that we call, if you care about, you should. <laughs> Fill in the blanks. Oh my. <laughs> this question is so hard for me. Um, I feel like, I, I feel like People should discover the wonder and explore the curiosity that they need to. And I don't really feel equipped as a person to tell people 
what to do or explore or believe, I think, um, yes, I, I want people to, to care about, I want people to explore what it is that they care about from every possible perspective to mm. have a better understanding of who they are and mm -hmm. what their values are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, I wouldn't expect anything less <laughs> from a poet. Thank you very much, Shin Yupai. Sure. I really appreciate you coming. Check out Shin Yupai at the Arts in Nature Festival, August 25th and 26th of this year at Camp Long. That's put on by the Delridge Neighborhoods Development Association. She's done some really interesting stuff there and elsewhere. You should check her out. Also, check out her book, due out next February from Entry Rio Books. We'll post that on the show, and you should follow her on social media as well. Thanks to Anthony McPherson for the dope poetry sample. Thanks to the Subcons for the music. Thanks to Naboo for the sound. I'm your host, Ian Martinez. See you next week.